This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings listeners, I'm Elizabeth Pearson, news editor of BBC Sky at Night magazine and I'm joined in the studio today by editor Chris Bramley Hello. and production editor Dave Golder. Hi there. In this episode, we'll take a look at what we've learnt putting together the January issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, looking at red moons, green stars and blue stragglers. Coming up later in the episode, we'll take a look forward to all the exciting space missions 2019 has to offer. We'll be interviewing Kerry Donaldson-Hannah about the OSIRIS-REx mission, which will spend 2019 and beyond studying the asteroid Bennu. So, Chris, would you like to get us started on what caught your eye in the January issue? Yes, well, um, on my multiple readings of the January issue um, before it went to press, one thing really jumped out at me was um, Chris Lintott's uh, cutting edge in which he um, looks at new science papers coming out. And um, the one that particularly caught my eye was about globular clusters and um, how many blue stars are in globular clusters. Now, blue stars are very bright, um, and they're the most energetic of stars, giving off, uh, you know, really they're very hot. So they're they're massive stars, and because they're they're massive, they burn through their um, supply of fuel really quickly. So they 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 don't last very long. And traditionally, um, globular clusters uh, don't have many blue stars. And this science paper looks at how to tell the age of globular clusters um, through blue stars. And he did a couple of scenarios where he did some modelling, um, the scientist, and um, he he came up with two scenarios for how um, blue stars would be made or produced in, in globular, globular clusters. One of which was um, small red stars in binary two in a pair, mm-hmm. and they're orbiting each other and they come together and they merge. And they're all instantly 
you have a one big star. So <laughs> it's like a kind of, you know, quick, quick way to make it. Um, these two, two red stars become uh, one, one big blue star. And uh, the other way is a bit more exciting and it's uh, core collapse of the uh, globular cluster. That does sound a bit more dramatic. That's pretty good. That, yeah. That's something, yeah. something science fiction, right? Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so um, what, what happens here is that the, um, the stars in the, in, towards the centre of globular clusters um, get, you know, kind of get closer together and then they merge directly. They kind of collide together. Um, these, are, these aren't binary stars mm. orbiting each other. They just collide together and that produces... The, the blue stars. And this can happen when globular clusters are billions of years old, mm. uh, as, as, is, as is the case with ones like M30 and M13. Mm. Um, so um, they, his modelling found that both processes were slightly more efficient than had been thought. Mm. And um, he, uh, he reckons there are more blue stars um, in these globular clusters ah, to be observed. So it's a case of we need to go hunting for them. Yes, that's uh-huh. right. And, and, you know, the interesting thing is those of our listeners who have larger telescopes which are able to resolve single stars in globular clusters, um, that's a really interesting target and a, a new bit of science to go, and, uh, mm. to, go and, to go and hunt down. More citizen science. Exactly, actually, yeah. 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 I was, that's one of the, always the big thing with, with sort of space science is quite often it's that question of, is it actually that these are the sort of populations of stars or whatever that we're seeing, or is it just that we can't see the other half? Yes, yeah, they're kind of hiding <laughs> like behind the, the ones, dust cloud. Or yeah, something. these yeah. are the ones that are there, or these are just the ones that we can see. It's yes, always absolutely. that big question. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite a resource, though, isn't it? As a, as a researcher, if you've, you know, you, you've come up you make this model, mm. this model tells you something which is counter to what was previously believed. Mm. And then you can just use the world of astronomers, animal astronomers as your resource to go, well, should we try and prove this then? Absolutely. Mm. It's, it's really valuable. Yeah. It, it's one I've, I've heard a couple of astronomers saying that it's, it's really useful that there is, you know, such a strong amateur astronomy group out there because a lot of the other scientists don't have that sort of resource no. to be mm. able to sort of have all of these people that are enth- engaged and enthusiastic <laughs> yeah. and have the equipment. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit frightening if genetic engineers could like... It's increasingly yeah. happening, which yeah. is slightly worrying, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so at least amateur astronomy can't cause a global pandemic, so good, good. <laughs> anyway, David, what have you been learning about this month? Well, we're going to go from blue stars to green stars now because uh, we've got a great feature on the on some stars that don't exist. Uh, but don't let that ruin your fun if you want to try and spot them because you can indeed uh, get your telescope out and try and see some green stars. Um, the thing about them is that no star actually, or as we perceive them, because there's another way where you can say they do glow green, but as we perceive them with our human eyes, no star actually glows green. However, there are certain optical illusions that happen in the sky, normally with binary stars, um, that's kind of with the way they interact with each other. That means that some stars do glow green or look green. Um, see, even I made the mistake there. <laughs> they don't glow green, but they look green. Um, and so, yeah, we've got a great little feature which goes a little bit into the science, but it's more of a, a, a more of an observing challenge to uh, try and spot these green stars up there. And But there is actually, as I worked out, a green star very much closer to home. 
because our mm. own our own star is green. Uh, Chris knows a bit more about the <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the the science behind that, but it has something to do with you know you know when you're a kid and you have uh, what they call uh, spectrum wheels. Do you remember spectrum wheels? Like round of mm. sort of disc and oh, you have all the, the colours. Yes, the oh, yeah, colour yeah, yeah. yeah. And you can turn them into a yeah. little spinning top thing. Yeah. And all the colours vanish. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And yeah. it's the same kind of effect, isn't it, Chris? It's yeah. the fact that the sun is actually it actually um, emits a lot of green radiation, but mm. because there's so much of the other colours around it, mm. they kind of merge into a white. Mm. Yeah, because green is in it is in the middle of the of the spectrum. Mm. So if a star is if a if a star is giving off most of its light in the green green wavelengths, then it's also giving off a lot of light in the other in the other colours just around that. Yeah. So that means you know yellow and um, and kind of red and, and towards the blue end as well. Yeah. And so what you get is like the the spinning colour wheel, which is a mixture of all of them. And to our to our eyes, that appears as as white. As white. Yeah. Mm. It's one of the reasons why they think. Well, why some people think that um, plants are green because uh, there's two types of things that do the job that chlorophyll does, mm. and one of them's red and one of them's green. Mm. Um, and because our sun puts out more green light, that's why we went kind of towards the the green one. Oh, um, even, yeah. I, was, I was reading something mm. the other day that was saying now I'm straying into biology here, but um, <laughs> that is our. I think it was our sun used to be redder in the past. Mm. And people think at that sort of time there was more of the the red one that was around, and then as the sun got greener, um, uh, yes. we went towards yeah. the green end. Yeah. Um, and yeah. uh, but of course there is there is a, an occasion where we can see the sun actually glow green. Uh, very, very mm. <laughs> if you're lucky and you're near the sea normally, um, there's a, there's an effect called the green flash, uh, which happens at sunrise mm. and sunset, just as yes. the, just as the sun's the on the on the flash. horizon. Yeah. And it does actually momentarily become a kind of like long, elongated green flash. And yeah. apparently, I was actually lucky enough to see that once. It was wow. genuinely Very a day jealous. after somebody told me about it. We like yeah. went, we're, we're down by the Pembrokeshire coast, let's go down and look at it. And amazingly, we saw that happen. Cool. What I haven't seen, and I read about this morning, is apparently, occasionally, you actually, it actually shoots up like a, a beam of light. Um, oh, really, like a column, column kind of yeah. thing? Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I have I've, heard that, but apparently yeah. that's... That's very rare yeah, that people I, I, see yeah. that. It's, you, <laughs> need, you need to have, like, other perfect conditions for that <laughs> yeah. to happen. Yeah. And, um, you, and you, Rosie, you were saying that the moon can sometimes even yes, a green flash. Yes, um, so this is actually looking forward to February's issue, but um, <laughs> apparently, yes, because the, 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 the moon is basically just the sun's light reflected off the surface of the moon. So it has a lot of, as it's rising and it's setting, it has a lot of the same effects that the, the sun has as it's rising mm. and setting. So you can sometimes get a, a green flash mm. off the moon. And that basically, because we didn't go to the size of it, is again, it's that old thing, it always is. It's the Earth's atmosphere. Um, it splits the, the spectrum. The spectrum we were talking about earlier all merging into white. Uh, at that point, and, you know, when it's the sun's so low on the horizon, um, there's an effect where the Earth's atmosphere splits the colours out again and briefly we get to see the green. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Cool. Yes. Very interesting. So on to me. Um, this month I've been reading, uh, looking ahead towards 2019, um, so next year and seeing what we've got to, to look forward to in the next year. Um, and in terms of uh, space exploration and space flight, it's going to be a bit of a bumper year. We've got quite a few things going on. Um, it starts off in uh, very, very early in um, 2019. Mm. In fact, on the 1st of January <laughs> yeah. 2019, we have quite a big milestone, which is New Horizons is going to be flying by Ultima Thule, which is mm. its second target on its journey. Um, so That's I'm really quite excited exciting. to hear about that. It'd be nice to sort of wake up on New Year's morning and, mm. and 
read about some space. Um, I presume <laughs> we're going to get some some actual images of this of this yeah. weird New Horizons. Body. When when we flew by Pluto, when it flew by Pluto, we got pictures back within a couple of days. Mm. I mean, it took sixteen months for it to, or something okay, like the, that to yeah, get because it's so back. far away. Yeah. its bandwidth is so low; it takes ages to get everything <laughs> mm. back. But mm. hopefully, we should see like the first couple of pictures, even on the days as it approaches, we'll That's be able incredible. to get something. So yeah. Mm. And it, but it's the fastest moving. New Horizons is is, is one of the fastest moving spacecraft, oh, isn't it? It was until the Parker Solar Probe launched. I think uh, it was the Parker right, Solar because yes, that yes. smashed the yeah, record yeah, yeah. like three times <laughs> yeah. over. But it yeah. was until until like yes. earlier this year. Yeah, it was the fastest so probe it's, ever it's launched. It's actual time. Um, the actual flyby is is going to be over just like that. Oh, isn't it? it's yeah, it's yeah. really short. It's amazing how much they yes. get from such a short Incredible. time. But yeah, it's, yeah. they've yeah. apparently they've already rehearsed it once. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. make sure that everything's working and they know what they're doing. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so rehearsed wow. in like the summer sometime. Apparently, what a start to the year. What, yes. what, what What's coming? Um, what's coming later? In the um, year, later in the year, uh, we've got the uh, gravitational waves experiment. LIGO will mm-hmm. keep on doing its thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also going to increase something called um, open public alerts, which are members of the public can, well, it's mainly meant for, for members of the scientific community, but observers at home as well can sign up to get alerts of if they think they found a gravitational wave so that you can point your telescope and try and see if you can see anything. Uh, yeah. So that's like oh, another citizen the, science yeah, 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 things yeah. that you can possibly get involved Brilliant. with. Um there's also the, hopefully, we'll see the first test flights from the commercial crew program over in the US. Wow. Which yeah. is the first attempt to get uh, US crewed launches, human launches, since the, the shuttle went um, in 2011, I mm. think that was. But that that's exciting, isn't it? And interestingly, that has just, because um, uh, we're recording this um, just the day after Virgin Galactic um, yes. managed yeah. to do, do a... Um, reach the edge of space. They reached to get. They they managed to get fifty miles altitude. Yes, um, which, about eighty kilometers. Yeah, the, which is which is classed as the edge of space mm. um, in Spaceship Two, and that's so how they've done. They've yeah. done that now. Um, they've they've done the first manned space flights on from U.S. soil mm-hmm. since um, the shuttle was was. Um, the last shuttle flight. Yeah. But yeah, exciting. More of that. Really um, good. We're also going to have a lot more missions that are going to. Um, be investigating things up close and personal. Um, (laughs) So we've got Chang'e 4, which is the Chinese spacecraft, which launched a couple of days ago, as we were recording this. Um, It uh, is going to be the first mission to attempt to land on the... Not to to attempt, but to to land, (laughs) if it makes it successful, to land on the far side of the moon. I just remembered some Russians tried in the 60s. Um, but uh, yes, it's it's hopefully going to touch down on the far side of the moon. So hopefully we'll Brilliant. be getting back from there soon. Is that, is that just for bragging rights, or is are they actually got a, a good scientific reason for? Um, I th- it's it's <laughs> it's partly for bragging rights, but also <laughs> we've never been to the far. We know the near side of the moon very well, but mm. the far side of the moon they do actually look quite different. Mm. Um, if you look at the pictures of the, the like, we all know what the near side of the moon looks like because we see it, you mm. know, every mm. month. But uh, it's got these like huge mare and things. On the far mm. side of the moon, they don't really have that. It's a lot more crater, like individual small craters, and mm. it's a lot more pockmarked. Um, mm. And quite often, if you look at like pictures of Mercury and pictures of the moon, far mm. side of the moon, they, they look quite the same. Mm. Um, so it's sort of finding out what those two differences is and see if there's any mm. kind of, you know, actual mineralogical differences. Mm. Um, 
There's also two missions that are currently ongoing, um, which is Hayabusa 2 and Osiris Rex, um, mm-hmm. which are currently at two separate asteroids, um, investigating those and having a look up nice and close at those two. Brilliant. Um, Hayabusa 2, earlier this year, put down the first ever rovers um, mm-hmm. to, to get onto a, a, the surface of an asteroid. Are they um, the hopping ones? Yes, they were. Well, wow. they, I say the rovers. They roved by hopping, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and more hopped the one yeah. that did. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, uh, but the, the thing that's really exciting about both those missions is they're both planning on bringing samples back to Earth, which is we haven't had many Fab. sample return missions, and most yeah. of them involved a person. <laughs> yes, so yes. Um, on the moon missions, so that'll be really cool. And yes, to, to learn more about Osiris Rex, our staff writer Ian Todd talked to Kerry Donaldson Hanna about the mission. So today I'm talking to Dr. Kerry Donaldson Hanna uh, from the University of Oxford, who is a scientist working on the Osiris Rex mission. Dr. Donaldson Hanna, thanks very much for speaking to me today. Oh, thanks for chatting with me at such an exciting time in the mission. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's worth at the start, though, kind of going over um, the, the kind of main points of the mission. So, why do we want to study asteroids? Yeah, so asteroids are really scientifically compelling for a range of reasons. The first is by looking at asteroids through telescopes and spacecraft and also studying meteorites, which we think are chunks of asteroids. We see that these small bodies are likely the building blocks of other terrestrial planets. And so that's what formed the Earth and Mars and Venus and and likely Mercury. And so understanding these small bodies then tells us something about how our own Earth formed. And they also seem to contain the building blocks of life. And so when we look at carbonaceous asteroids like Bennu, which is the target asteroid for OSIRIS-REx, and also Ryugu, which is the target asteroid for Hayabusa 2, we see volatiles, we see organics, we see amino acids, we see all the fundamental components of life. And so these bodies are suspected to have brought um, those components to Earth and filled, you know, started life in the in Earth's oceans. So fundamentally, they're just the building blocks of, of the planets and, and likely life. Um, second, asteroids can also potentially give us resources for exploring the solar system further and further out. Um, currently, you know, the way we explore the solar system is by launching everything onto a single rocket into space. Everything has to be launched from Earth, which makes it quite expensive. Um, But if we want to start sending humans to other planets and exploring further into the solar system, we need to be able to get resources in space. And asteroids likely have water and other resources that might be able to be used um, for, for those resources. And then last, you know, there's a select group of asteroids that at some point could potentially come close to Earth or could potentially impact Earth. And so studying these bodies and understanding their physical characteristics and their chemical makeup gives us an idea how we might stop that from happening or mitigate those impacts. Okay. Um, why was uh, Bennu chosen? What's what, what's special about it? And also, now, now that the spacecraft is there, what sort of science can the spacecraft actually do? Yeah, so 
they kind of established a, a set of criteria for picking asteroids. And, and the first was one, they just wanted an asteroid that was close by um, because that would be easiest and quickest. And so they were looking at near earth objects, which are asteroids that are basically orbiting the sun at the same distance that earth is. So approximately one astronomical unit. And they were looking for an asteroid that had a similar um, orbit shape, so something fairly circular like like Earth's orbit, and then also something that its inclination was fairly low. And what I mean by that is that the angle of its orbit is not too high off of the solar system plane. And so I think out of 7,000 near-Earth objects, just using that criteria re reduced it down to 192 asteroids. And so then they wanted to look at an asteroid that was of the appropriate size. And so, you know, looking at the orbital dynamics or the spin of asteroids, they, you can see that anything that's less than 200 meters in diameter spins so fast that material can actually be ejected off of it which would make it really difficult for, for sampling or for the spacecraft to engage with the asteroid. And so they looked for asteroids that were larger than 200 meters in diameter. And so that reduced the candidate pool from 192 to 26 asteroids. And then finally, they wanted to go to an asteroid that was very carbonaceous in composition, because like I said, we want to study, you know, where the origin of, of life, so things like volatiles and organics and amino acids might originate from. So they wanted to find a body that would likely have those materials. And so specifically using telescopic spectra, as of different objects, as well as using laboratory spectra of meteorites, they were able to identify and down-select 26 asteroids down to five. And then they finally settled on Bennu. Okay. Um, and now that the uh, spacecraft is there, can we kind of draw parallels with perhaps the Rosetta mission to st study Comet 67P? Is it like that? Is, is there a lander? I mean, what sort of science is actually going on? Yeah, so the spacecraft actually has a whole suite of instruments um, similar to, to Rosetta in the context that there are um, cameras. Um, so we'll be mapping the surface at a whole range of spatial resolutions from the different cameras on board, um, similar to what we saw with Rosetta. Um, there will also be spectrometers on board. Um, one spectrometer will be looking at the light that is reflected from the surface at visible to infrared wavelengths. And I, I believe that Rosetta had a similar instrument on board. Um, we'll also be looking at the heat that is being emitted using a different spectrometer. And so we'll be looking at the thermal emission. I, that I think is different from Rosetta. And so those two things will tell us like what the surface looks like geologically speaking, and then It'll also allow us to map the composition, um, identify different minerals and materials on the surface. And so those two things were definitely done with Rosetta. Um, also on board is a laser altimeter, which will allow us to map the topography and really know the surface structure, um, which will be really important for sampling the asteroid. Um, there is not a lander on 
on OSIRIS-REx. So we are not going to have a little fillet that goes down to the surface and, um, and does experiments at the surface. Instead, uh, what OSIRIS-REx has is what they call the touch-and-go sampling mechanism. And it's basically this long arm that almost looks like it has a, a vacuum head at the end. And the spacecraft will just slowly go to the surface and touch the surface for like five seconds. And during that five seconds, nitrogen gas will be burst into the uppermost surface. And that will act as a vacuum to pull material into the sample head. And so that's how we'll be sampling the surface. It will just be touching it for just a few seconds rather than sending a lander or trying to, you know, I think on Rosetta they had the harpoons or the, you know, the grapples that tried to keep fillet or that they tried to land with. I would just also be interested to kind of know how you came, how you came to, to work on the mission because it, yeah. whenever um, whenever we kind of have these big international, you know, NASA and all the other Europe, uh, space agencies missions, it's always very interesting to to hear that there are um, scientists based in Britain um, work, working yeah. on them. Um, yeah. So I was wondering like, if you could say how you, how you came involved in the mission and are, are there many other kind of um, British institutions work, working on the mission? Yeah, so I was actually finishing up my PhD at Brown University and was mostly focusing on the moon, um, doing research. And I started looking for um, a postdoctoral research fellowship. And someone that I knew from um, the moon mission that I was working on called Diviner, um, they, uh, you know, invited me to apply for a position at Oxford and specifically to start doing experiments for OSIRIS-REx. And so I thought that sounded pretty interesting and a good way to kind of expand my research interests. And so I, I took the postdoc um, here at Oxford. And so I've been here for about five years now. And initially, I was just working as a collaborator on the mission through um, my postdoc advisor, Neil Bowles, who's a, a co-I on the, on the mission. And so I started making lab measurements and building up spectral measurements of materials that we think are going to be on Bennu, um, which will help when we start getting measurements of the surface, help interpret that data. And then I guess it was a year and a half ago, NASA opened up a call asking for scientists to apply to be a participating scientist and kind of having your own independent research project on the mission. And so I applied along with, I think there were maybe 70 to 80 other applications that went in. And I was selected as one of 13 uh, participating scientists to be on the mission. So I kind of transitioned from being a collaborator working under my postdoc advisor to now kind of being my own independent scientist on the mission. Myself and Neil Bowles here at Oxford work on the mission. We're mostly interested in trying to understand surface composition and the thermophysical properties by looking at the spectra that we're going to get back from the spacecraft. But definitely there's others involved on the mission. Um, at Open University, there's uh, Ben Rositas, who's going to be really heavily involved in using thermal models to understand 
the properties of the surface and also understand how the orbit and the rotation of the asteroid is evolving over time. And we also have Ian Frankie at Open University. And Ian is going to be doing a lot of sample analyses once the sample is returned. And so Ian will be using laboratory facilities at Open University to study the isotopic composition of, of the sample. And then there's also Sarah Russell and Ashley King at the Natural History Museum, who also will be involved more after the sample returns. And they're hoping to also do laboratory um, analyses at the Natural History Museum of the sample when it returns. So there's a, you know, th there's a whole range of UK scientists that are involved kind of with all aspects. You know, we're, Neil and I are focusing on understanding remote sensing and trying to help pick a sampling site. Ben, ben Rosidas is trying to understand how to also help pick a sampling site and keep the spacecraft safe while we're in orbit. And then you have Ian, Sarah, and Ashley who will be focusing on studying the sample once it gets back and putting it into the context of other samples that we have from meteorites and, and other um, missions. Yeah, that's what that's like probably the most exciting thing about the the mission, isn't it? The, the fact that we're actually going to be able to bring samples back to Earth yeah. and, and, and study them. I mean, it, that that kind of thing's not been done before in an asteroid, has it? No. So, uh, you know, I was hearing Dante Loretta give a talk at who's the PI in the mission uh, at the American Geophysical Union meeting, and it kind of reminded me that no other spacecraft has ever brought back this amount of sample before. So it'll be the largest sample collection since the Apollo astronauts flew to the moon and hand-collected sample at the lunar surface. So that's pretty exciting and pretty amazing. Yeah, um, but um, we are already getting some results back from the mission, aren't we? I mean, uh, I think yeah. it was in the last week we just, there was there's the announcement of the discovery of water. I mean, yeah. how, how exciting was that? Yeah, I mean, so... When they were picking the asteroids, they were certainly doing a whole host of Earth-based telescopic observations. And so we thought we knew what the shape was from looking at radar data. We thought we knew what the the surface was going to be like, like how big the boulders were going to be and how big the, you know, the particles of the soil would be. And then we also thought we knew the surface composition. And so... Um, the, the, these first results have shown that, one, uh, they, they were pretty spot on with radar observations in understanding um, the shape of the, of the asteroid. And so while we have better shape models now that we're in, engaging with the asteroid, it showed that that was pretty spot on. We also, before we got to Bennu, thought that the asteroid should include hydrated minerals or so minerals that at some point in time have interacted with water. And uh, sure enough, uh, the spectra that came back uh, during the, the, the approach phase has shown that in fact, we do see across the surface um, minerals that are hydrated. And so there is water in their crystal structure. And so, yeah, so those are even though we kind of thought we knew these things, it's still exciting to, to see it. And then I think one of the more interesting things is 
one thing that we were surprised by is how many boulders are actually on the asteroid. So that wasn't anticipated. Like there was anticipation there would be some boulders, um, but we certainly are seeing a lot more boulders than we anticipated. And so that'll definitely make it interesting and challenging over the next few few months uh, as we're trying to investigate where we might want to sample. Mm. And does the discovery of water have any implications for our understanding of how water arrives in our planet? Is, is, is it that kind of yeah. field? Yes. So what we can see is that, you know, so there's some type of um, probably clay material on the surface. Now, clearly, the asteroid itself is quite small and it likely cannot sustain water on its surface um, right now. But what means is that the parent body of Bennu, because typically all these very small asteroids actually originated from a much bigger body that was disrupted at some point, breaking it up into smaller chunks. And so what it means is that Bennu's parent body likely had water at its surface. And that definitely tells us something about how water was distributed across the solar system in the very early stages of the solar system. And then, yes, by looking at the isotopes and looking at the geochemistry of the sample when it's returned, that will be able to tell us about if it helped bring life to Earth. So what, what um, when will the uh, spacecraft be bringing the sample back and what is left for the kind of future of the mission? How, how long will the mission be going on and, and what, can we, what sort of science can we expect? Yeah, so we actually have uh, quite a lot of time left in the mission. And so we're currently in a, f in a phase where the spacecraft is doing flybys of the poles as well as the equator to really understand the mass of the body and understand its shape really well. And that's needed so that the spacecraft can go into orbit safely about the asteroid. So while we're at Bennu. We haven't really gone into orbit yet, but we're supposed to go into orbit on New Year's Eve. So just, you know, in a few days time, actually. And then once we go into orbit, we'll start doing the mapping, the, the compositional mapping. And that part of the mission will go on for quite some time because we're not actually going to sample um, the surface until July 2020. And so for the next, from now until July 2020, we'll really be understanding the surface composition of physical properties and where we see fine materials that we can sample. And then once we get global, global maps, we'll then down-select that to a select number of sampling sites. And then at one point, the spacecraft will start doing practices where it will actually go down to the surface, act like it's going to sample the surface, but not. And it'll go. It'll have a lot of opportunity to do that. That um, those tests to make sure that when we are ready to sample in July 2020, we really know what we're doing. And then the sample actually doesn't start making its way back to Earth until March of 2021. And it'll take about two years um, to get back to Earth. And so the sample is supposed to arrive on Earth September of 2023. So we still have a, a little ways to go before we actually get the sample back here on Earth. 
Well, it's uh, it seems like a very uh, exciting mission and certainly one to keep an eye on in 2019 and um, indeed over the next few years. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for speaking to me today and good luck with all your um, future asteroid endeavours. Uh, thank you very much. That was Kerry Donaldson-Hanna talking about the OSIRIS-REx mission. To find out more about the space missions coming up in 2019, don't forget to pick up the January issue of BBC Sky Night magazine. There's lots to see in the night sky in January, and you can find out more about how to see it all in this month's issue. For me, however, there is one standout event this month, and that's the lunar eclipse on the 21st of January. A lunar eclipse is a stunning and easy-to-view event that astronomers of any level can enjoy, and as long as the skies are clear, it should be visible right across the UK. January's will require an early start as it takes place roughly between 3.30 and 6.50 UT in the morning of the 21st, with totality falling between 4.41 and 5.43. The moon will be in the southwest at that time, so make sure your observing site has a clear view in that direction. Then all you need to do is get up in time and watch as the moon gradually frays from white to grey to red and then back again. You can find out more about the lunar eclipse in the January issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, as well as discovering how NASA is using artificial intelligence to explore space, how to take scientifically useful images of the inner and outer planets, and read our interview with the head of New Horizons, Alan Stern. And not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.